My guest on this episode of Executor Help says sibling estate fights are not only about money. Children, both young and adult, compete for the love of their parents. When a child is not treated equally in the will, it's interpreted as a statement by the parent that the child receiving less was not as loved as his sibling. That rejection stirs up deep emotions that can drive the sibling estate fight. A sibling who has been treated unequally in a will might be litigating simply to gain an understanding of the parent's reasoning. So what do siblings fight about? Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast, a show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davided.com. Now here's your host, David E.D. Charles B. Ticker is a mediator and estate litigator with over 40 years of experience. He restricts his practice to mediation of estate disputes, estate litigation, and estate administration. He's recently produced a CD set entitled How to Make the Most of Your Mediation, and he's written actually an excellent book and what I was using during my research for my book entitled Bobby Gets Bupkis, Navigating the Sibling Estate Fight. What's also interesting about Charles, he's been listed in the 2021 Best Lawyers in Canada for Trusts and Estates. So uh, first off, Charles, welcome to the uh, podcast. Um, Clearly, with all this experience that you've had, you've probably seen a whole bunch of problems that siblings have brought to each other or the torture that they bring to each other over the years. And uh, welcome. Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. So so, so why do uh, siblings end up fighting and what do they fight about? Well, I think, you know, sibling rivalry is no secret. Everybody knows the concept. And, you know, there's some scientists that argue that it's actually in our DNA that we're not going to get along with our siblings or there's the potential for sibling fights. We, they even see it in the microbe world, in the plant world, in the animal kingdom, that uh, siblings uh, have a tendency not to get along. And, uh, and I think you'll see it in most families. But some families control the underlying tensions better than others. And I have no statistical uh, statistics on this, but my anecdotal belief is that roughly maybe 10% of families where their siblings will get involved in these sibling fights. And although they might fight as children, they continue to fight uh, as adults. And these, um, and when the parents are gone, there's no parental referees and that's when the gloves come out and they start fighting over the estate. Although we can talk about this as well, we're seeing more and more siblings fighting over their parents' estate while the parents are still alive. They're not waiting for the parent to die. And and also with what you've seen over your 40 years of experience, tell me about an estate that you've seen that they just weren't prepared for the siblings to be fighting. Well, in, in my experience, I don't think anyone's really prepared, <clears throat> excuse me, for a sibling estate fight in court. And let, you know, because sibling court fights are very different from business disputes, you know, business disputes, uh, it's commercial, it has beginning and end. And quite often that relationship will continue between the businesses after they resolve their dispute or there's a judgment. Siblings fights are very different. So I don't think they're prepared, first of all, for the tremendous expense. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars and even six figures of it goes to trial. And then, of course, there can be appeals after a trial. And also, they're not, they're not prepared for the tremendous emotional toil and drain it takes upon them um, going through the process, reliving all these uh, bad feelings. Uh, because what happens in these sibling fights is, and I see this all the time, as do my colleagues, they're fighting not just what's, what they're fighting about, the money or the cottage or whatever. Uh, they start reliving all the fights they had as children. Uh, uh, 
And so, you know, they, they, they think they need a lawyer, but quite often they might need a more a social worker or a psychologist. I think the emotional drain is in some respects, even more of a toll on them, taking a toll on them than the money, but they're just not prepared for, I think, how long it takes. Everyone thinks I'm going to have my day in court. Well, it's yeah. not like TV where, you know, in an hour you go from the beginning of the case to the end. It just court cases, especially with COVID now with the backlog drag on for months, years. And uh, so I think that's, they're not prepared. Can you think of somewhere where you saw that they weren't prepared to, that you could see that there was going to be a problem when the fa- when one side came to you and uh, they said, well, we're going to court? Well, I can think of one case and someone, I, I was actually representing the elderly parent, the father, who had the beginnings or of dementia. It's hard to tell how capable he was. And he had four children that were fighting over who should have control of his finances and his personal care by way of powers of attorney. And to some extent, my client, the father, was somewhat to blame because uh, he would change his powers of attorney willy-nilly, and depending which child he wanted to favor, he would change the power of attorney. So they, would, they had all these competing documents. They were fighting over who had control, going to the bank, going to doctors. And they lost sight about what they were supposed to be looking after, and that was dad. And then what nobody was prepared for is dad got very sick, had a, had a stroke, ended up in the ICU. And this family couldn't even work out a visiting schedule. Hmm. You know, who could visit when uh, at the hospital? And the hospital said, we're not going to have any of these fights. We actually had to get court orders where a judge set out a visitation schedule. Uh, 24-7, who could be in the room. And the judge ended up appointing a government official in Ontario. It's called the uh, public guardian and trustee. But that's a government of, uh, office that looks after the interests of incapable people. That, it, that bureaucrat's office started making end-of-life decisions for their father. And I thought that was so sad. And I don't think the family realized that once they got their their dispute into the public domain and they were fighting for control, the irony is at the end, they all lost control in terms of personal care decisions. And some total stranger took over end-of-life decisions for their father. And I thought that was very sad. And I think, you know, like they didn't, nobody really saw that coming, but, you know, it happened. But it, it, for it to get to that point, is there is there is there not at no point are they so stuck in their their in their their own individual camps of their own thoughts of where the way things should go, especially like in this case for the dad, that no one wants to stop and say, you know what, this is crazy now. Look what we're doing, or is everybody just sort of stuck in their ways and they and they. They, they just they just want to forge ahead because they want to be right. Is it about being right? It's it's about being right. And what we hear all the time, it's, you know, what's fair? You know, this is not fair. I want, yeah, but everyone has a different concept of what fairness is. What happens is what I see in these families that like a lot of a lot of these cases, the vast majority do settle before they go all the way to, to a court hearing, even though a court case may be pending. But there's maybe 5% that don't. And the families like the one I described, the, the family problems are so long-standing. And they go, like, in this one, I remember uh, doing cross-examination of one of the siblings. And he said, well, I won't agree to my, my brother having control because he's uh, dishonest and he can't be trusted. 
And I said, well, why can't he be trusted? Well, when he, when he was 11 years old, he stole a chocolate bar from the corner store. So like I said, they bring up stuff from childhood and it's like in their DNA. And if they have the resources to continue fighting, and, and this family had resources, because what happens is they run out of money, that sometimes ends it, or they run out of steam. But this family had money and they just couldn't get past that emotional uh, that was, like I said, ingrained in their, in their DNA. So what happens, it, you, you would think, yeah, let's, everybody, let's just be reasonable and let's work something out. And it's not the lawyers that are pushing it, in my experience. It's the client. And that's, again, because everybody wants to be right. And, and yeah. uh, it has to go that way. And at what, what point do you siblings, you as being a mediator, and then they say, you know what, let's go to court. What, is there, is there a, a certain point that um, you don't end up going to court and it gets settled? Is it because of money? Or is it because they run out of money? Or now they, they realize that they're now probably eroding the, the estate? What's the, the, the point of no return that uh, now you're, you're pretty much blowing up everything? It's uh, a great question. Uh, mediation uh, and, you know, that being, you know, a meeting with a, a neutral party who facilitates the discussions of mediator. Uh, in my jurisdiction, where I practice in, in, in Toronto, it's mandatory in these types of disputes. Basically, it depends sometimes how far along they are in the process. I mean, you don't want to go to mediation too early because they need the information, they need the documents, but what they have to have some pain of the legal cost because then they begin to realize that they are burning through the estate, they are burning through money. Most of the time, it's just that they realize that they just can't take it anymore. And I've seen cases that drag on. What happens? Some of the parties, the kids die in the middle of the proceeding, you know, and then what do you do? You know, they, uh, they're fighting over a parent's estate and one of the kids dies and then their estate takes over. But what our, our courts uh, in my jurisdiction, the judges are trying very hard to get people to settle. Even on the eve of trial, judges themselves will be doing mediations and saying, look, you don't want a total stranger to, to decide this case for you. Because you know, one of you is not going to be very happy, and the loser is going to pay a ton of money in costs. And also, do you want your dirty laundry all over the internet? Uh, you know, when the case is reported, because all these cases are up there. So when I'm meeting a case, I really stress the confidentiality, the privacy, and the fact that you can be a lot more creative in mediation than you can in court in terms of. Uh, resolving a, a dispute. So there has to be a willingness to make compromise. And the, I'd say the vast majority of cases will settle, but there'll be a certain percentage where the parties are just so full of venom and they have the resource, they'll, they'll continue the fight. Are, are, is it always about the money? Is, is, is this what it's always about? It's always about the money that they end up this way. Do you have examples of where people weren't fighting over the money, they were fighting over something that was something ridiculous? It, it's, it's not always driven by the money. Uh, a lot of times what's driving it is, like I said, this concept of it's unfair or it's about control. Who, and like I said, a lot of the litigation we're seeing now is while the parent is alive. So you have an incapable parent with dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever, and there's a fight over who should be controlling the finances of the parent, who should be making the medical decisions. So a lot of the times it's about control uh, and not necessarily uh, money. Although, you know, money is quite often the main reason why people fight over the states, but we're seeing now it's about uh, just lack of trust and control. And with all this 
turmoil that families will go when you, when they decided that we're yeah we're going to get lawyers involved and then we're going to the the final step will be we're going to go through mediation and then that final final step is going to be the judge is going to talk to us before you head to court what happens to the family after that uh, the family you were talking about what happened to the family they just disintegrated well in 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 that case i i what happened in that case is that the the parent died and then my involvement was sort of off was off the case because I lost my client but uh, I know one of the kids I think the fight continued one of the kids um, passed away uh, I don't think it was ever reported so I believe it was resolved but at that point they were dealing with the estate and they were all equal beneficiaries of the estate so the fight that I was involved with was a control fight who controls the money um, who controls the medical decisions the power attorney and then I, I I don't know exactly what happened there but I suspect uh, especially with one of the siblings died that they just ran out of steam and uh, and they ate up so much money during that litigation. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'd say collectively was was spent on that mm-hmm. litigation. So what would you say to... And, I would, and I'm sorry, and also yeah, yeah. point out, I doubt very much that there was, you know, a, a reconciliation. I, yeah. I doubt that. It does, it very rarely happens. Sometimes we hope it happens in mediation, but quite often it doesn't. So what are the solutions to to help families avoid heading down this road and, and having a sibling fight. Let's say, for example, the parents are alive and they're fighting or the parent has passed away and the will has been written and it's been set up a certain way. What would you say to people facing this situation? What are the solutions? How can they avoid these problems? Well, first of all is to get your estate plan in order when you're you know younger and then review it every few years. Don't wait till you're um, on the edge uh, when you've been diagnosed with dementia or you're in a deathbed in the hospital, that's not the time to make a will because that leads to all kinds of problems, especially uh, where the will treats the children differently. Uh, so obviously any will that treats the children unequally uh, or not in, uh, in equal shares is a potential for a problem. Uh, although even wills that treat everybody the same is a potential for a problem if there's allegations that one kid got more gifts or loans during the parent's lifetime, or one kid did more for the parent, think they should get more. So the key is, first of all, have your documents in order, your parent's attorney, your will, have them done by a professional, by a lawyer. Don't buy one of these kits where you're going to maybe mess it up uh, and review it on a regular basis. And also if there's anything that seems different or may cause a problem, like if there's a family business or a cottage, uh, what I recommend is that the parents have a round table with the kids and have that chat around the dining room table and, and maybe even set up a formal family conference business meeting uh, with their lawyer, with a mediator, with their accountant, and try to get the kids to buy into the estate plan and even sign an agreement that, yeah, we're not going to fight, we accept it. Even if they don't sign that agreement, the parent might get at least an idea of what the source of the problem is and try to, to fix it. But where we see problems most of the time is where the estate plan is done very hurriedly at the end of life, uh, before the end of life, or not, or it's not done properly uh, with a lawyer. And, uh, and it's, uh, so it should be done um, as soon as possible and reviewed on a regular basis. So it sounds like it's important to have conversations while you still have all your faculties um, if you're if you're the if if it's your estate that you're planning, but as an executor, what else should you be looking at? Should you also 
say to the person who's you're, you're the executor of that estate, you need to let, you know, let so-and-so know that this is what's coming down the pike. So it's not a surprise. Right. And, and people don't always, you know, when they make a will, they don't always check with the person they've appointed the executor as executor. Uh, they don't always tell them at the time, by the way, you're the executor. Sometimes it comes as a surprise. And quite often I'll tell people that are appointed executor, if it looks like it's going to be a messy situation, I say, wait, maybe you don't want the job. You know, it's a, it's a thankless job. And maybe you just want to renounce and say, no, no thanks, I'll pass. Because you don't have to accept the job if you don't want to. But I, I think if an executor and uh, knows that there's going to be a problem, yeah, it's probably a good idea to, to start that dialogue uh, earlier uh, than wait uh, before, because it always turns out to be you know, what, what were mom's dad's real wishes? What did they really want? And that's why having a, a will done by a lawyer is helpful because the lawyer hopefully is going to make very detailed notes, but nothing speaks louder than hearing it from the parent. But I got to tell you, even hearing from the parent while they're alive does not mean there won't be a fight. I mean, I have a f- file where the parent on her deathbed, she, you know, so on her deathbed, she, she had told all her kids that Sally was going to get the house. Because Sally needed a house, and there I think there was four or five kids. They all heard it. She put it in her will. Unfortunately, it was a homemade will that she did on her deathbed. And of course, when she died, even though people heard it, even though there were witnesses that swore affidavits that they heard, they still challenged mother's intentions and had a big fight. And and eventually, it settled at mediation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, even if you have that dialogue, even if you do your best to write it down in a letter or whatever. I hate to say this, if a family is inclined to fight and has the resources to fight, they may still fight. It's not very encouraging, but that's just the reality. (laughs) I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your knowledge. Hope people that are siblings are in a situation. They now know that if they know that uh, they don't get along with a brother or sister, that they have to be cognizant to have the conversation with the parents, hopefully can alleviate future problems by having conversations with all the children, knowing that this is how, what their wishes are going to be going forward. And that'll help. In my case, personally, my parents should have done that and we wouldn't have ended up where we ended up. But I think part of the reason why I wrote my book is you just have to have those conversations. Charles B. Ticker, I'd like to thank you today for being on the Executor Help podcast. People want to get in touch with you. How can they find you? I, I, I urge them to go to Amazon and get Bobby Gets Bupkis, Navigating the Sibling Estate Fight, because you've got a whole bunch of tips how to help families stay away from the fight. But if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Probably the best way is just to go to my uh, website, uh, tickerlaw.com, and they can find me uh, through the website. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Executor Help Podcast. For more details, visit davidedy.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. 